I want to give a talk about a, a Zen story. And the story uh, has to do with how we <coughs> practice with desire. And I thought that would be a relevant subject. Uh, when, when I say desire, the word desire maybe conjures up uh, lurid images. <laughs> desire. <laughs> you know, of sexuality, addiction, and other such strong stuff. But uh, really the basic form of desire is something pretty prosaic, pretty everyday. All the little preferences, the little desires that we have all the time we might actually be able to escape uh, the big spooky desires, you know, obsession. Maybe we can most of the time avoid obsession, uh, addiction. But this sort of commonplace, everyday desire is not something that one easily overcomes. Uh, in fact, maybe it's impossible to overcome. Uh, in a way, uh, Buddhist practice is really just the practice of paying attention to our living. And if you pay attention to your living, it doesn't take long before you realize that there is an inescapable coincidence between desire and suffering. Where there's desire, it often happens that Suffering is not far away. We, we want something, something big or something small, some, anywhere, anything from, you know, a nice cup of hot coffee to abiding happiness. Yeah. <laughs> it's always something. And uh, when we don't get that which we desire, usually we're more or less miserable. And when we do get what we desire, we're happy, but only for a little while. Because then there's something else we desire. And so we have ever fresh chances for unhappiness. Now, short of being able to be uh, declared king of the entire known universe, probably we're all guaranteed a certain amount of misery. And when you think about it, it's obvious that the more important the desire is, the more certain is the misery. Because the more important the desire, and the bigger the desire, the more likely it is that it will not be satisfied. For instance, everybody wants to live forever in strong, healthy, and attractive bodies, doing important, noble, satisfying work, surrounded by other people who, who, who love us madly, and are also healthy and attractive, <laughs> and happy, 
and will remain that way indefinitely. This is an example of a desire that will not be gratified. Now, most of you know, I'm sure, that in one formulation of the Four Noble Truths, it says that uh, desire is the cause of suffering. And the end of suffering, therefore, comes about when there's no more desire. That's pretty logical. When we hear this, we think, well then, I will now work on eliminating desire. But it doesn't take long in that effort to see that it doesn't work. Because we begin to notice, when we pay attention, that life and desire are just as coincidental as suffering and desire. Wherever there's life, there's desire. So now we're really in a quandary. And we're beginning to wonder whether the Buddha was, really, was being realistic when he taught that suffering could be ended. Or whether he was just as impossibly idealistic as every other religious person you've ever heard of. Because if you really look at it, you see that as long as you're alive, desire cannot be ended. So what are we going to do? So this is the predicament that this story speaks to. So here's the story. A monk uh, asks Zen master Dongshan, when heat and cold come, how can we avoid them? And Dongshan answers, why don't you go to a place where there is no heat and cold? And the monk said, where is that place? And Dongshan said, when it's hot, the heat kills you. And when it's cold, the cold kills you. So that's the story. I love to come to Spirit Rock because whenever I tell one of these Zen stories, everybody chuckles. Ha ah. <laughs> ha. In the Zen places, everybody's very serious about the stories. <laughs> but they actually are quite funny because life is kind of funny. Anyway, that's the story. And, uh, you know, I was saying before that I, Everyday Zen Foundation has places up and down the coast from from Canada to Mexico. And in Mexico, where we practice, it's tropical Mexico. So it's really hot down there. Finally, after many years, I figured out that if I went down there in December and April, it wouldn't be too bad. But when I first started going there, I would go in July or August. It was really hot, really hot. Uh, and we would be sitting in meditation in puddles of sweat. It was so hot. And, and it was so hot, it reminded me of the heat waves that we would have sometimes when I was a monk in Tassajara Monastery in the Los Padres National Forest, where every summer there would be a heat wave. It would be 110 or 120 degrees, and nothing to be done. Because uh, neither in Tassajara nor 
at Mardahade, where I practice in Mexico, is there any air conditioning? So when it was hot, there was no choice. You would just have to be hot. Now, some people like the heat, but I never liked the heat. When I was a boy in the, growing up in the Northeast, the summers would be hot, and it was so miserable. Little kids usually like summer, you know, because school is out, but I hated summer because it was so hot. I just felt like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't move. So fate has taken me to the hottest places in the world, you know, to get over this. And finally, uh, I did more or less get over it. What I learned was the profound truth that heat is just heat. That if, when you're hot, you're willing to be hot, and when it's cold, you're willing to be cold, and if when you're in pain or misery, you're willing to be in pain or misery, then you discover that heat or cold or pain or misery aren't so bad. In fact, sometimes you can even be grateful for them. My, my father-in-law has Alzheimer's disease, and when he is in pain or cold or hot, he actually doesn't know it. If he's really sick and miserable and you ask him how he is, he'll say, I'm fine. He thinks he's fine. Maybe he's better off. But probably not. Probably he's missing something. To be alive in normal human consciousness means that you're going to be hot, you're going to be cold, you're going to be in pain sometimes, you're going to be in joy, you're going to be in misery. In other words, it's one thing after another. You're always in some state. To be able to experience all of these states without complaining about them so much that you lose track of yourself, basically rejecting your own life so that you can become you know, really miserable right in the middle of your own life. That's terrible. To just be able to appreciate the state you're in as changing states come and go that is, to live naturally with some self-sufficiency. There's another uh, one-line Zen saying that is very germane here. It's from another uh, Zen poem, which begins, The true way is without difficulty. Just avoid picking and choosing. And when you practice with this phrase, of course, just as I said before, you quickly see that there's way more picking and choosing than you ever imagined. That almost every minute there's something that you're picking and choosing or something that you're rejecting. So what is this saying telling us? Is it, is it a joke? Is it trying to tie us up in knots? Well, when you stay with this phrase for a while, you, you, at first you think that's right. It's just it's a joke. It's trying to screw us up. But then you realize, it's not the phrase that's screwing me up. It's my life. It's life. You have preferences all the time. And they're making you unhappy. Or if they're not making you unhappy, at the very least, 
they're severely limiting the possibilities. Because we all keep on doing and choosing the things that we prefer and not doing and not choosing the things that we don't prefer. And as time goes on, life gets more and more narrow and more and more repetitive. I think we've all had the experience of being deprived by circumstances of our preferences. And instead of what we wanted, we get something that we did not want, and we discover that it's much better than what we wanted in the first place. Have you ever had that experience? And it's much more illuminating and expansive than what we could have gotten if we had gotten our way. To avoid picking and choosing, like the phrase says, doesn't mean that we have no preferences or desires, because that's impossible. We wouldn't be human beings. It means understanding that desires and preferences are much more limiting than life's true possibilities. When we know this, we don't have to get so intoxicated with our desires and our preferences. We can hold them lightly and with a little bit of humor. We can think, you know, if I get what I want, great. I will enjoy it thoroughly, knowing that it won't last, and that in the very next moment I'll pre be presented with new choices and new opportunities for happiness or misery. If I don't get what I want, I'll change so that I can be interested and open to what I do get. Even though I'll never be able to abandon my karmically determined preferences, I actually can, through my practice, become less fixated on them. And the more fixated I am on my preferences, the worse my life will be. You can really have a miserable life if everything that comes along, you say, ah, that's not what I want. It's not a happy life, is it? And, and, and you are not empress of the universe. So a lot of things are going to come along that you really don't want. So I really like this teaching uh, because it reminds me a lot of the life that I have led. When I was a young man, I had very strong preferences. I did not want to become a Zen student, much less a Zen priest. My idea was I wanted to learn how to do meditation because I thought that meditation would be a good way to understand life. I did not think it was necessary to practice a very long time or to have a teacher or to become part of a Zen community. My plan was that I would learn meditation, I would get this profound understanding, and then I would go on to my main project, which was to become a poet and win the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which I was absolutely sure would happen someday. But somehow it didn't work out that way. And as time went on, I found that I was not able to exercise my very important preferences. And it turned out that 
in order to just do a little meditation, which is what was my plan, I did have to have a teacher, and I did have to be part of a Zen community, and I was willing to do that because I realized it was just temporary. And uh, I was right. It was and is temporary, but I didn't know that temporary would mean the rest of my life. Yet, as this whole thing unfolded, I never regretted what was happening because I was the beneficiary or the victim, depending on your point of view, of one of the most secret and most common facts of life. And now I'm going to tell you what it is. That when you move toward a goal, as you go toward that goal, the goal changes. And there's another thing that changes. You. So our preferences and our desires are not impulses to be realized. We think they are. But that's not the point of our preferences and desires. Our preferences and desires are energies that are given to us by the universe to move us forward to the places we are destined to occupy. When you finally figure this out and stop resisting, you can have a very interesting life. If you never figure this out, and you fight with things, you can be frustrated all the time, bemoaning the fact that things did not turn out as you had expected, and ignoring the fact that they did turn out exactly as they did, which is always marvelous if you pay attention. If only you could see where you are without being entirely blinded by where you wanted to be. So how can we escape hot and cold? The question means, how can we escape being blinded by our preferences, our expectations, and our desires? Well, Dongshan says, go to a place where there are no preferences, expectations, or desires. Is there such a place? Yes. It's the place where you are right now. In this place, you are completely free from hot, cold expectations, desires, and unhappiness. And you are always at that place. And what prevents you from enjoying it is yourself. So, at this point, we can remember uh, the many teachings in Buddhism about the nature of the self. We all think, because we're conditioned by culture and language and the whole world around us and the way people relate to us and the way we look at things, we, we think that the self is, is permanent, that it's fixed, and that it is to be, to be identified with the body, with the thoughts, with the feelings, and, yes, with the desires and preferences. This is how we all think. 
whatever we think we think. That's what we really think. And, and it's, you know, we shouldn't uh, imagine there's something wrong with this. This is the normal and ordinary way that anybody thinks about himself or herself. And the only trouble with it is that's wrong. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't be so bad if it was wrong, if it didn't also cause an endless amount of trouble and strife. You don't have to meditate for too long to notice that the self is an ever-shifting flow of experiences, thoughts, feelings, images, desires, sensations, and so on that seems to be associated with the mind and body, but is not limited to the mind and body. The real ground of the self is this present moment of being alive. And that ground is always pure, and it's always worthwhile, regardless of what's happening. When, because of our preferences, we hold ourselves back from the wonder of this present moment of being alive, we suffer. Or if we don't actively and strongly suffer, we just simply miss the fullness of our living. When we give ourselves without reservation to the present moment of our being alive, we're going to be happy and fulfilled even if what is happening in this present moment of being alive is not what we wanted to have happen and not what we planned on. Even if this present moment of being alive was the last present moment of our being alive. So this is the place beyond hot and cold. And when Dongshan is asked to tell where this place is and what's it like, he has a very clever way of describing it. He says, when it's hot, the heat kills you, and when it's cold, the cold kills you. And isn't that true? If we ourselves, that is, ourselves as we understand ourselves in the usual wrong way, if we ourselves are the cause of our suffering and unhappiness, then we have to get rid of this mixed-up sense of self in order to get rid of the suffering and the unhappiness. And, and Zen language is always very drastic and colorful. So, you know, in Zen type of discourse, they say, you have to kill yourself. And what kills the self? Simply surrendering into circumstances. When it's cold... Just be cold. Don't stand to one side and look at yourself being cold and complain. When it's hot, just be hot. Don't stand to one side and complain. When you embrace the hot or the cold or the Zen center or your job or your relationship or your illness, then you will completely disappear. And instead, there will just be your life. And then you'll be free. 
Now, if you have been thinking about what I've been saying here, you, you will realize there are two big problems with this. The first problem is, if you think it's a good idea, how are you going to put it into practice? And the second problem is, suppose that the life that is my life at this moment should be, for some reason, changed. Does this teaching tell us that we are to accept everything as it is, including, let's say, injustice, misery, violence, illness, without doing anything to change it? Is that what it's telling us? We should be like a stone, whatever happens, we just accept it? So those are two problems, don't you think? There's significant problems with this otherwise delightful teaching. As for the first problem, I would just say that how we realize this is by our ongoing effort in practice. And practice means, you know, a committed regular meditation practice. It means going to retreats from time to time. It means reflecting on teachings. It means having a community of support. And most especially, it means really paying attention to your living, to what's going on in your life, to the way you're thinking, the way you're feeling, the way you're perceiving. Since actually being happy with the lives that we really have requires that we overcome and re-understand more or less everything we've been taught. It's obvious that there's no simple, easy way to bring this about. Because any simple, easy way that you would be attracted to would automatically be folded into our conditioning. And even the best method would be subverted. And it would only reinforce our deeply held perspective, rather than, rather than help us to overcome it. So, the approach of practice is, is really gradual and over time, maybe almost imperceptible, patient effort, without too much examining the results. I think those people who really want to take up spiritual practice will come to feel that it's the right thing for them, and that it makes a difference in their lives. But if you're too picky about looking for you know, results, you get discouraged. So little by little by little over time, and every now and then all of a sudden, we will come to live differently, and understand our lives differently, and feel our way into our lives differently. But the perspective we have is never retrospective. We're always aiming uh, to go straight ahead. We're never looking back. How am I doing? We're just going ahead.
Now, the second problem is a little hard to think about. Of course, sometimes in life, we have to say, no, these are not good conditions. I have to change things. We're not like plants, after all. Once they germinate, they stay in the same place. They don't move around. They soak up the wind and the rain. They do not have volitional action. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, it's not that, I mean, the plants are noble creatures. And one of the things about uh, spiritual practice is you get a lot of respect for plants. You realize that, wow, it's a beautiful thing to germinate and to just stay there for your whole life, soaking up the sun and the wind and the rain. It's a beautiful thing. And you realize that, in a way, you know, we're not that different from plants. And certainly we all depend on plants. And we wouldn't be here if it weren't for plants. And plants are our brothers and sisters. Uh, thanks to plants, we exist. Thanks to us, plants exist. Still, though, we are not plants. We, we do have volitional capacities. We move up and down on the earth, unlike plants, most of them anyway. On the other hand, when you look at your life really closely, you see that exactly like a plant, at any given moment of time, you are where you are. And you cannot be in that moment anywhere else, right? Just like a plant. You can't go anywhere in this moment. So every moment is a moment of appreciation and acceptance of what is there. But in that very same moment, in response to what is there, volition arises in you, and you have to accept the responsibility for your humanness just as a plant accepts the responsibility for its plantness. So a human being accepts that responsibility, accepts the place where he or she is, embraces it, and based on that place, then goes forward. So yes, we change, and we take volitional actions, but we go forward in a good way, based on the acceptance of where we are. If instead of this, we look at where we are and we say, I don't accept that, I'm not really here, I'm, I'm resisting that, I'm complaining, I don't like it, then yes, propelled by our complaining and our, and our inability to accept where we are, we will go forward anyway. But we'll go forward in a very screwy way, and we'll have a lot of trouble. This might be a subtle point to understand and appreciate, but then again, life is subtle. And that's part of our problem, you know, our mind is not too subtle. Our life is pretty subtle. The thinking mind is, is not a subtle instrument most of the time. And it hates contradiction. But if you really pay attention to your life, there's tons of contradiction everywhere you look. So accepting where you are at any moment is not only not 
incompatible with exercising choice and judgment. In fact, real choice and real judgment depends on your accepting where you are. So real acceptance is not passive. It's not resignation. It's the most dynamic thing there is. The only way to go forward is from where you are, not from where you should have been if things had gone differently. You got that? (laughs) So one old Zen master uh, commented on this story, and he said, Peaceful meditation does not require mountains and rivers. When you have extinguished the mind, fire itself is cold. And again, as I said before, we have to make allowances for the kind of drastic rhetoric of Zen. But the, but the point here is, is pretty clear, and, and it's absolutely true. When you're able to appreciate where you are, and abandon where you think you ought to be, then you can always meditate wherever you are. And and everything you do and everywhere you are is a place of meditation. You don't need perfect conditions, because all conditions are perfect. This is because all conditions are totally inclusive. And you get to notice, in quiet, there's noise. And in heat, there's cold. And you begin to realize that about your life. And I think you understand this. In loss, there's always some gain. And in gain, there's always some loss. In what you think you want, there's always what you don't want. And what you don't, and in what you don't want, there's always something that you really need once you get it. And you can relax. And know that fundamentally there is absolutely nothing to worry about. Even if conditions are really terrible, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Well, there's an old Zen tradition of commenting on a story by quoting another story. So I'll conclude my talk with that tradition. I'll tell you another little story. A monk asked uh, Zen master Tsui why did the ancestor come from the West, which is a kind of a Zen way of saying, you know, what's the point of all this practice? What's it all about? And... Uh, Sui Wei said to the monk, when no one comes, I'll tell you. What's the, what's the, why did the answer come from the West? When no one comes, I'll tell you. And so then he went into the garden. And the monk, being persistent, followed him into the garden and said, no one's here. Please answer me, teacher. And, and Wei pointed to the bamboo growing in the garden, and he said, this stalk is short, and this stalk is long. And the monk understood. 
So, so being no one, which means, as I've been saying, being willing to live with full engagement right where you are, with nothing left over and no regrets, does not mean that we lose track of what's good or bad. In the present moment of being alive, everything is always perfect. That's the way it is. Still, we retain our human volitional mind and our discriminative capacity, and we just know this is ethical, this is good, this is unethical, unethical, this is bad, this over here is a very good thing, this over there is a total disaster. We can tell the difference. Such necessary judgments are our guideposts for going forward. But we don't need to get hysterical about all this. And, and sometimes in religion, you know, that happens. We get hysterical about what's good and what's bad. We not only make our discriminations, but we become self-righteous in them. So there's a big difference, you know, between looking and seeing. Oh, here's a long piece of bamboo. That will be good for this job. Here's a short piece of bamboo. That will be good for this. There's a big difference between that and here's an evil, sinning, terrible bamboo. And here is a holy, righteous, saintly bamboo. These are two different things. Two different ways of understanding what's good and what's right and what's necessary. And the difference between the two is really uh, compassion and empathy for everything that is. So, uh, the next time you get mad at the Starbucks because they gave you the wrong kind of coffee and you're really agitated about this, you know, relax and just drink the coffee that they gave you and enjoy it. And the next time that uh, something happens in your life, maybe bigger than the cup of coffee at Starbucks that you really didn't want, instead of screaming and yelling and thinking about how you deserved it or didn't deserve it, you're a good person and why should this happen to you or you're a terrible person and no wonder this happened to you. Just see what's going on. See what is happening. And realize that it's from this place that is the only way, the only place from which you can go forward. So that's what I wanted to tell you tonight. Thank you for listening. After a while, you started to really pay attention and hear what I was saying. That's, that's always a nice experience for a speaker. Um, we have about uh, 10 minutes. So in case there's anything to say or any, any uh, questions or comments or complaints, that wasn't the talk I planned on hearing tonight. I wanted to hear something else, let us know.
Anybody have anything to say? Please uh, don't be shy. That's true. She was saying that, did you hear what she said? Maybe everybody heard. Yes? No. She said in meditation she had the thought, oh, I hope this never ends. And then she had the thought, oh, I hope this ends right, right away. And she realized that those two thoughts are really the same. Just, it's the same thought, just turning one way or turning the other way, but it's the same thought. It's the thought of, you know, not being here. Yeah. Yes, sir. Pardon me. Oh, uh, yes. This would be a great idea, but I don't. I never memorize my own poems, and I don't have any with me. But but uh, but that's a great uh, excuse for me to tell you that um, Thursday night, if you're if you're in the East Bay. <laughs> or uh, want to go to the East Bay, or know of anybody in the East Bay, uh, there's going to be a, a, a cultural extravaganza going on at the uh, City College of Berkeley, which is in downtown Berkeley. It's an event sponsored by the Poetry Flash. So if you're interested in going or telling your friends about it, you can find it on the web in, in the Poetry Flash's schedule of events. And it's... Um, there's a magazine uh, called New that comes out of Paris, and it's a reading, an event uh, for contributors to that magazine, and I'll be reading poems there. Um, but so will Gary Snyder and Joanne Kiger, who are master poets, and there'll be uh, videos and music and all kinds of stuff. It should be really interesting. You don't see stuff like this too often. This yeah. Desire came up. Desire, yeah. This Thursday, this, this Thursday evening at 7.30 uh, in, in the City College, uh, Berkeley, which is, I'm not sure, it's a new college, it's downtown, Center Street, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're from the East Bay, or, yeah, tell people about it, it should be, it should be fun. Um, and while I'm at it, uh, I'll also tell you about something else that's really an amazing opportunity. Uh, 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 Linda Cutts, who's the abbess of Zen Center now, is going to lead a, a, um, a meditation-based, what would you call it, human rights 
tour of Colombia, south down and down in the south of here, Colombia, South America, with her daughter uh, Sarah Weintraub, who is a human rights worker in Colombia and knows Colombia really well, and it's going to be a wonderful trip. And you can find out about that on the Everyday Zen, not Everyday Zen, the Zen Center uh, website. I don't have any, I, w I wanted to bring some flyers about it, but I was not able to. So that's something you should tell your friends about. If you have friends who are Dharma students who are really passionate about uh, the situation, different uh, in South Latin American culture uh, and Colombia and human rights, I think it'll be a beautiful trip and very sweet to have uh, Linda and her daughter together leading, leading the uh, tour. And, uh, oh, more things, yes. I didn't want to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to tell you who's talking next week and so forth, make the final announcements. Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering if you see an opportunity to embrace desire without being dominated or thrown off center by it. Sure, absolutely. And can you talk a little bit about what that would look like? It would look like letting go. Uh, accepting what comes, completely embracing it, if it's desire, embracing it, and letting go. The thing about desire is, it's already complete. This is the thing to be learned. When a desire arises, we think, oh, I have to get that, that which I desire. And when we think we have to get that which you, we desire, uh, then we're down, walking down a pathway of increasing attachment if we don't pay attention, and then there's a lot of suffering. But if we realize, oh, in the arising of this desire, its fulfillment is already there, then we can relax about whether or not the object of our desire arrives in our vicinity. We don't have to, you know, scheme. We can just be careful and patient. And in that way, uh, we can enjoy our desires without uh, becoming obsessed by them. So this is something that, uh, I guess, the take-home message is it's possible. Study it closely and find out for yourself because, you know, this is something only you can find out from inside your own experience. Yeah. Yes? you could talk a little bit about your, um, your process of writing poetry and how meditation affects that. Do mm. you use meditation as a process of uh, letting go of the ego and letting, letting new material come? Or? Uh -huh. Well, yeah, uh, I think that um, because of um, meditation practice, uh, I got used to the idea of being confident in something coming and something going. So my process in writing poetry is not to think of something clever and wonderful to say. It's just to uh, wait for words to come and see what happens. And, and the words themselves, the language itself, carries me forward. So I'm not exactly expressing myself or telling you about some exquisite, wonderful thing that happened to me and how sensitively I dealt with it or perceived it. I'm just uh, 
basically being willing to be present within the field of language and the tradition of poetry as I've experienced it. And then uh, with confidence let something arise and follow it wherever it takes me. This does not guarantee a good poem. Uh, it does guarantee a poem. And then uh, I have to think, you know, and use my discriminatory faculties to fix the poem if it's out of balance, or know enough to throw it away if it's not any good. So that's my, more or less my method, yeah. Because otherwise, you know, people worry so much about, you know, how, are people going to like this? Are they going to think I'm brilliant? Are they going to think I'm a stupid, you know, or whatever? So I, I don't really, I don't worry about that so much. Yeah. Well, I always have a good time uh, coming to Spirit Rock, and thank you very much for your kind listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.